Pete Yost here for the Unbuild It podcast with a word about our sponsor, Huber Engineered Woods. There are really three reasons why I think Huber Engineered Woods stands out, and it's a big part of why they're a sponsor of our Unbuild It podcast. First, they develop systems of products. The products are compatible and integrated. Makes our jobs a lot more easy in the field and when specifying. Second is superior tech support. There are really good website resources that they have developed for the application of their products, but they also have an outstanding uh, 800-numbered tech team that really knows their stuff. And the last is a really active technical research and development team with whom I've done a lot of work over the years, and I have a lot of faith in the information I get from them when I have questions about product performance. So that's it. That's our high-performance sponsor. Now on to the podcast. Welcome to the Unbuilded Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Yost. And uh, Jake makes me laugh all the time. I'm here with Jake and my buddy Steve. Good day. And this uh, episode's topic is ventilation. And um, I think one of the hardest things to explain to people new to the building industry and or your clients is, yes, we're going to make your house so airtight that we have to introduce outside air. Oh, when you said venting, I thought you meant like, I had this client the other day and I just want to, I thought that's what we were getting ready to do. I need to change my notes here. Let's, <laughs> never mind. You were so counting on being able to vent. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. thought this was a podcast about bitching about clients. And so when we talk about ventilation, it's trying to bring in Three things, right? The the right amount of air in the right from the right location, drawn from the right location, and then according to the right schedule. And that's the difference between just whatever the cat dragged in and uh, improving air quality by bringing in outside air. So, do we want to start with ventilation that we don't want? ventilation that we sure i'm very intrigued well let's start with it's uncontrolled we have the right. leaky house that's what you just said yep uh it's unfiltered it's untempered it's willy-nilly it's crappy windows crappy doors uh it's a eight inch duct that just goes from the exterior of the house into the mechanical room and just is a hole that you could get a Hope raccoon through you know <laughs> But that's how we did it forever. And so a quick question for each of you. Do you remember the first house that you did whole house mechanical ventilation on? Yes. Steve, do you? Um, yeah. Do you care? Mine to, wasn't that long ago. <laughs> so just like what were the throws that you went through or considerations? Oh, I had to argue with our HVAC guy as to whether or not it was important. Hmm. As to whether or not it was a good idea. It was an addition. And it's interesting because the second uh, acronym letter there is V for yeah. ventilation. Ventilation, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we had a very, when we started doing all of the, what I think of as a upgraded performance, go, as soon as we started building beyond code, uh, there was a, it was a knockdown drag out with every HVAC guy that we worked with for the first few years, period. Oh, you can't you can't do that with a mini split. That'll be a bad. That won't be comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know those mini splits. They get dusty and then they're they just quit working. You know, 
Like they just didn't understand the technology. So it was the same as anybody else in our industry. The second you do something different or new, they want to poo-poo it because it's not the way that they do it. And they think the way that they do it is correct already. Interesting. Uh, and so what mechanical ventilation system did you install the first time through? I don't even remember the name of the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, it was built in a Brown plant, but it wasn't a Brown oh. unit. Brown makes an incredible amount of ERVs for other people, too. Interesting. So if you're getting a... Like, so it wasn't ERV, an energy recovery was. ventilator, yep. which we'll come back to in a second. Yep. Yeah. Uh, if you're getting a, a, chances are, if you're getting a private label ERV that is not a major manufacturer that you recognize of HVAC equipment, Brown probably makes it. Interesting. I didn't know I think they're the largest manufacturer of ERVs in the U.S. Hmm. Steve, your first mechanical, whole house mechanical ventilation. Zender. It was a Zender? Your first one? Yep. Passive house? Yep. That passed the house. So that same project, the the first passive house that you did? Yeah. Did you have any trouble selecting the system or working with your nope. HVC that contractor? Was a top-notch system back then, our top-notch company that was very collaborative effort. The builder was very good, open-minded. We were all kind of trying learning, to figure it out. Trying to figure it out. So the builder just used it as a learning experience. Good mechanical contractor. Did you already you already had contacts at Zender at that point too, right? Yes, John. Yep, John was there. So did you get that relationship as the result of this, for, or no, did John you already knew a, him? John, I, John was a professor, right? He was one of my professors in college. Oh, okay, yeah. Long, John Rockwell. John Rockwell, who's no longer at Zender. Wow, okay. Oh, interesting. So he's moved on to other um, high-performance companies. He's actually in Russell, Switzerland, <coughs> as we speak. So we started with probably the high end of how you can uh, fulfill the requirements for whole house ventilation. Being an ERV. Being an ERV. So let's go through what the options are in terms of how can you ventilate the whole house. Um, we're pretty much going to start at the opposite end, which is continuous exhaust. So how does that work? It goes and dumps it outside. And then you can never exhale. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, we're telling jokes over here. So if you ran your range hood, if you you ran your range hood 24-7, that would be continuous exhaust, right? Or a bath Uh, fan. And you're right. It is a continuous sucking sound without relief. And it's the least expensive, right? And carries the biggest penalty probably. Well, and not only that, but it probably satisfies the least well, right? Because... Where is the air coming from? It's still coming from where the cat dragged in, right? There's no yeah. dedicated you know, source. So you said cat dragged in. Do you know that I did a ventilation system for a cat litter box that was a motion detector for a project? <laughs> Wait a minute. The, you did a ventilation, did a ventilation dedicated ventilation system for kitty litter. That was on a motion detector. It's pretty genius, actually. Why not? Um, Did you have to mount the motion detector down low? It was the calendar box was in its own like little micro room. Uh, You've never told me this story before. Can you elaborate a little bit? It was a very (laughs) uh, extremely successful client. That was just part of the project. 
man, did was there the same level of odor control for other potential sources of yeah, odor in the building? Also, I think the project we're working on, it was incredible what we were doing there. And this was just part of that. Substantial budget. Yeah, it was. Lots of options, lots of choices. So it, Four figures a square foot. Four figures a square foot. Yikes. So that's how um, you get to that point. You put in ventilation systems just <laughs> for the, the kitty litter. shit on. <laughs> right. I, I guess that goes with the territory. So when you continuously exhaust for your ventilation system, you continuously depressurize. And so what's what's kind of tolerable in terms of pressures? And I'm, I I say this because Steve and I both worked with or around the um uh, Masco Environments for Living program, which had a standard of no uh, more than three Pascal's pressure difference from any location in the building. And I've heard Joe say that, yeah, you know, three Pascal's is sort of a general, you don't want to go beyond that in terms of the penalty that might be involved. Um, Steve, do you did you ever hear anything different no, than three Pascal's? Well, and there's a 300 or 400 CFM breaking point on, or at least there was in the code. I'm not sure exactly how it reads in the 2021 that if your range hood was under 400 CFM, you didn't have to provide makeup air for a long, long time. Oh yeah. Uh, and that's why you see when you go shopping for fans, you see a bunch of them rated at like 395. And we started this conversation sort of with whole house mechanical ventilation, but we're kind of bleeding into the fact that there is a standard and that includes not just requirements for whole house mechanical ventilation, but also requirements for spot ventilation yep. as part of the whole package. Um, but for the whole house element, that means that uh, you're slightly depressurizing the building, which would probably be better in a cold climate than in a warm climate or hot humid climate. Because if you're slightly depressurizing during the winter, you're sort of keeping more of the moisture out of going into building assemblies. Um, You're pushing if, less of your warm, moist air into the wall. Into the walls, exactly. So there is a slight preference to do continuous exhaust in cold climates, but they're, they're always the least expensive approach to meeting the mechanical ventilation requirement. Um, but so, we a lot of times we make the pressurized argument slightly under pressure to help with like soil gases like radon. Yeah, so there's it's a bit of it's a bit of a tricky game to play if you're not going to do balanced, and so we're, we're going to come back to that in a second. So of course, if you can do continuous exhaust, you can do a, a scheduled supply, which again the limit would be not to pressurize the whole building more than three pascals positive. Um, but there are actually two types of supply systems: the 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 uh, supply system that is just a network throughout the building to slightly pressurize it, or the central fan integrated supply, which Steve, you know, was dear to our hearts during the Building America years because one of the engineers on the Building on the Building Science Corporation team was Armin Rudd, who had sort of developed his own patented system for central fan integrated supply. And all that means is that the duct from the outside comes into the uh, supply plenum and every time the, the supply plenum or the return plenum. Well, I'm sorry the the return plenum. Thank you. Um, and what would happen is you, because you're um, adding a little bit of pressure, it's uh, a, a supply and slightly positive. But um, 
the uh, the the res- the result of this is that since it's integrated with the forced air system, you've got to turn on this big ass blower in order to just get your ventilation. Yep. So you have to run the furnace's blower to get that air to move through the house. So I've had a couple conversations with HVAC guys that we've worked with in the past about this. And one of them was like, well, you don't have to have it on. It'll still work its way into the house. And I'm like, there has to be a driving force. It can't just be a damper. And if it's dumping into the return side and the fan on the furnace is not running, the path of least resistance is backwards out of the return side. And now we're not filtering it the way you were making an argument that you are filtering. And for those listening, the reason you dump it on the return side, not the supply side, is because then you're on the outside of the filtration device. But only if the fan's running, is the argument I was just making. Yes, but what I'm saying is you don't want to hook it up to the supply side or that because then the outside air doesn't get the opportunity to get filtered. Excellent. Or tempered if the system's running, too. And one of the advantages of the system is that you're now, rather than dumping all the air into one place, it's being distributed throughout the whole building. But but Armin's, Armin's system wasn't only, it was reliant on the uh, motor from the air handler. And yeah. you had to have one of the, the multi-speed motors, right? It wasn't like his device was based on the fact that you could run the air handler at a much lower speed when needed. Well, I think not not initially in the er, most early I systems. He, yeah, I, I had to have to check. I thought yeah. it was because it was an ECM motor. It's like electrically commutated or something. Yep. Or, and that's what he developed his system on. But his system was basically, as I understood it, the, the brains were, it monitored the runtime of the unit. And, and it would have a timer so that if, if the duty cycle was 20 minutes on, 40 minutes off, it would watch the motor for the air handler. And if it didn't come on in 20 minutes, then it would turn on the motor at low speeds introduce or induce the ventilation into the house without introducing the heat or cooling. And so the cool thing was, if it was calling for heating or cooling, you would get for free the ventilation. But if it was the shoulder season, and particularly, and it wasn't calling for heating or cooling, then you had to start the motor just to do the ventilation. So essentially the timer was just picking up the slack time. Perfect way of describing it. the unit wasn't running. Now the benefit of that is is you're you're already paying for the ductwork. So the whole distribution to every room in the house has already been installed because it's in there for heating and cooling. I mean, in in some sense, you know, Armin's thing was genius. The problem is that it doesn't do anything for humidity. Well, neither does an exhaust fan. I agree. Right. But so where we're what we're doing is we're sort of going from the least expensive, the simplest system and working our way up. Certainly, the uh, central fan integrated supply is more expensive and more sophisticated than just straight supply side, which is pretty similar to what happens on the uh, open supply system compared to continuous exhaust. And we're moving from sort of a two to three hundred dollar range for continuous exhaust up to maybe five hundred bucks in the range for central fan integrated. Maybe a little more than that. Maybe a little more than that. The Armin system was that. I remember we, uh, I forget the name, um, but we did that big stucco house right down the street from, uh, I do remember the name, just like I said, from Building Science Corporation. And I remember testing it with Armin hmm. on there. Cool. And we went 
everywhere throughout the house and we were within one and a half degrees of temperature mm -hmm. and that's like up against the ceiling on the second floor <coughs> and near the basement of the of the slab on the basement and we we're within one and a half degrees everywhere in the house yeah that's and that's if it's a well-designed hvac system you're going to get well-designed ventilation but there's always this tension between how much air is needed for ventilation, which is significantly less than what's needed for space heating and cooling. And so that moves us to the next category after central negative supply to balanced. And that means the same number of uh, CFM coming in and going out. And now we have to have a different ducting system or not, right? Because once again, we're going to have that choice. Can we accomplish balanced ventilation through the existing ductwork, or do we go ahead and establish a new ductwork system for the whole house ventilation? Right. And, and I think that that system then gets broken down into two types there because the distribution I've done, I'm trying to think if there's more than the two, but I know there's at least two. So there is what I would call the big duct system and the little duct system. Mm -hmm. So the big duct, it is duct, not duct. The big duct system is like a renew air system mm -hmm. where you have a pipe that comes in and out of the house and a pipe that in and out of the outside. Right. And then one that goes in and out from the house. So it's basically four large ducts that dumps into some main room. And, you know, you can, we've done it where we've done some smaller ducts go wying into a bigger duct and that one big duct goes outside. So you can pull from like a bathroom or two in the kitchen when the system is on. Um, but when it dumps, it just basically dumps into a big room somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then you rely on, you know, just the natural integration of air to move it around. The small duct system is like a zender. Mm -hmm. You have dedicated three-inch ducts that go to every room in the house, and they push and pull on that room. And when you're thinking through design, certainly the zender system is going to be more demanding in terms of design elements to it's make sure more demanding, but it also is the better of the systems yeah. because it's taking distribution to the extreme. And so when we talk about the two types of balance, we also have within that two types of heat recovery systems. Yeah, because you can balance the big duct system too. Right. Just as much as the little. It's just it's a question of do you want to have, you know, the the system integrating into each and every bathroom and bedroom, or do you want to integrate it to just the big room in the house, the great room? And then of course there's the biggest reason for doing these is budget and expense. Yeah. Because four ducks to a unit that's a little smaller than the zender it's a lot easier to solve for than it is running 30 or 40 pipes through the house. So for the big duct, either heat recovery or energy recovery ventilators, we're talking in the price round range of several thousand dollars. Yeah, I think you're probably <coughs> under five for a lot yeah, of the ones that we've yeah, done. Something like that. And then when we go to the energy recovery or heat recovery ventilation system with the little duct, now we've moved significantly above Five. More, more than doubled. More than doubled. Yeah. It's a double yeah. to start, depending on the size of the house. But like Palladora Homes, we use Renew Air all the time. Mm -hmm. And that was the big duct system. Yeah. So we're going to now talk just a little bit about the difference between heat recovery ventilation and energy recovery ventilation. And this comes up all the time with my clients because 
it's not easy to explain this, the two different systems. And there's a lot of debate about the, the benefits of an ERV over an HRV. So in a heat recovery ventilation, the only exchange across the heat, heat exchangers built into the system is to pick up the, the sensible load. So whatever moisture is moving through, if you're bringing in cold, dry air and you're sending out warm, moist air, you're recovering the BTUs in there, but not the moisture content. There's no... Why is that? Well, um, because in order to capture the energy in the moisture, you have to have some type of enthalpic wheel or medium that allows the transfer of some of that moisture content. So in a, in a residential... ERV or HRV, the membrane basically in the core is different. Correct. And that's and part of that reason is because the air that is likely to be winter temperature in an HRV could cause that membrane to freeze. Well, it could cause damage to that membrane. Yeah. So in in both HRVs and ERVs, you have to be very careful about accumulation of uh, moisture that will freeze the system, which um, engages a defrost cycle. And, of course, that's a huge energy penalty. So you'd like to keep the heat exchange in such a way that, you know, it's a gradual thing. The, the first, the, from the first plate or exchange memory to the last, you have an opportunity to sort of slide, right? So you don't have really different streams. So in a perfect world, is there a, a seasonally a better time to have an HRV or an ERV? Yeah, so that gets really complicated because it's yeah. by climate Based and then by location. season. So let's use climate five as the example because that's where we're from. Because yeah. um, I'm getting at something here, but I want yeah. you to answer these questions first. I've never been convinced that the ability of an ERV to really pick up significant you know, latent load um, is worth the effort or the cost of an HRV compared to ERV. But there, and I'm not an engineer, and there are plenty of engineers that say, no, that's crazy. If you can go with it. The, the other major consideration for me is that there are way too many people out there, including HAC contractors, that think that you can dehumidify outside air with an ERV. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah. The, um, so you're promoting the use of an HRV in our climate. Well, so the other thing I like about an HRV from <laughs> a building a, science depends, point of view is that it HRVs incidentally dehumidify during the winter. So they help to keep the air inside the house drier. Now, client you know, occupants might not like that, but I don't care about them. I care about the building. Because I know I, 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 I <laughs> was a joke. I couldn't remember who it was. I want to say it might have been one of the Zender guys, but they had said in a perfect world, the beauty of Zender is you would buy both the ERV core and an HRV core and then swap. And seasonally them. swap. No seasonally. kidding. Yeah. Because they have that ability. The core can slide in and out of that. Machine. I have never heard of that. That's really so interesting. We, we kind of glazed over. You were starting to say the difference between HRV and ERV, and you, we just talked about HRV. So ERV, there's another load that's taken care of there, and it's it's the moisture. Right. right? It helps to main—the the only thing the ERV can do is it helps to maintain the difference between the two streams. It can't actively move moisture from, you know, from one stream to the other, but it can help to reduce how much it would dehumidify in the winter. 
or how much it would increase the humidity in the summer. But it can't de actually dehumidify. By trying to equalize. Yeah. By enthalpy. Yeah. Enthalpy is actually capturing both the latent and the sensible load in the exchange. Yeah. Um, so I know we don't have that much time left, so we have to talk a little bit about, well, how do you go about calculating how much air that you need to do in terms of whole house? And I want to talk about my failed experiment. Ooh, we better go through the table pretty quick. So in the code book, there's a section. I'm going to and we're referencing IRC 2021. Um, <coughs> which is um, mechanical section uh, 1505 in general. And you, you can do your calculation of how much air, how much CFM you'll need, either by the table, which is based on overall square footage and number of bedrooms, or you can use the equation, which takes into account the overall size of the building by square feet and then the number of bedrooms. So just real quickly, I'm going to read you the equation. Okay. Okay. So it's 0.01 times the square footage of the building, the condition space plus 7.5 CFM per bedroom plus one, okay? okay. So let's take a 1,000-square-foot house. Yep. So if it's a 1,000 square feet, we're going to multiply 1,000 times 0.01. That would be 10, Yep. right? And then if it was three bedrooms. Two bedrooms. I'm sorry, two bedrooms. It would be 7.5 times three. Three, because it's number of bedrooms plus one, that's 22.5 plus 10, that's 32.5 CFM uh, per, for, hour. per hour for the building. And interestingly, if you go to the table, the answer for a thousand square foot house, two bedroom is 45 CFM. So, so the table is, gives more. Gives more. And, and at that level, it's quite a bit higher. But the problem is the category is anything less than 1,500 square feet. So uh, the table is more of a blunt sword, right? Yep. And well, so, and the table, as we were talking about earlier, says square footage, not cubic volume of air. Yeah. What if, I, what if my house has 7 foot 7 ceilings? Yeah, well, what if my house has 12 foot high But ceilings? the people only live down low, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> only the air down low? No. Only on the air. We're on the down low here. Okay, okay so let's do another example. Okay, so a 4,000 square foot house, four bedroom, that would be 4,000 times 0 0.01. That's so 40. 40. And then 4 times 7.5. Because it's 30. No. So uh, we're doing a three-bedroom because it's three-bedroom plus one. Sorry. That's 7.5 times 4 gets us to 30. Correct. So then we're adding 40 and 30. Steve, can you do that in your head? No. That's 70 CFM. And in the tape, in the book, so for uh, the, the requirement for that 4, number is... Three bedroom. Uh, is 90 CFM. So it's higher again. Yeah, higher again. So, so in other words, but it's but it's just playing it safe. Well, it's it's what happens when you fall into categories. We use the actual square footage, right? Mm -hmm. Where there here it's 3000 to 4500. So okay. if you have a broader band, it has to be it has to be the high more, side. Yeah, it has to be on the high side. And we should note that 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 calculation is ASHRAE's 622 yeah, this is interesting because it's part of ASHRAE 62.2. But it's in the code, But too. it's in the code. So the Which is funny because there's not much that's noted in the code that isn't just a check this standard and go someplace else. It's not yeah. very often you see a calculation in there. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, that it, it doesn't reference 62.2 here. It simply uses one of the major elements from 62.2. Yeah. 62.2 is more complex and takes into account more 
aspects of what affects the air exchange in the building. Absolutely riveting read. Well, I got to give Jake, I mean, Jake's got a a, a relatively well-worn version of the 2021. So it's pretty cool. You even said like, how could you build if you didn't have a copy of the code book? How how can you possibly do this if you don't know what the rules? And spoiler alert, we are going to do an episode on how the code gets developed and implications for con- for builders, high performance builders. But well, that's interesting you should say that because we're not going to have you on that one. Yeah. We're going to have a special guest who has special expertise that Jake and I do not have. So you, you don't juggle. you don't get invited. You you know you could listen to that podcast too though if you wanted to. <laughs> okay, so you wanted to talk about a failed experiment. Yeah. So now he's going? excited. Now that it's his turn, he's no, excited. Please, I'm I'm really interested. So we actually had interest in trying to see if we could heat and cool a house via the ventilation system. Wow! It was only an 800 square foot house. The experiment failed miserably, so we couldn't. You just you're not you're just basically not pushing enough air to change the temperature. So so you're saying that the ventilation air requirements are just not enough to support you're heating and cooling. Moving enough air to yeah. And even in a passive house, you're just, you're not, you're not. Interesting. So to get the fresh air we need, it's just not enough CFM to be able to then also condition air at that level. Yeah. That's really interesting. So even for a tiny passive house, you couldn't get there. It was only 800 feet, but it did have 12 foot um, walls and, you know, the peak was at like 16 feet inside. So it was 800 square foot. Is this one on Martha's Vineyard? Yeah. It was 800 square foot large volume. Right. Right. Interesting. It was a challenge. And the basement was part of the conditioned space, too. So it was basically another 800 square feet of space. Oh, interesting. So So you buried the lead. It's not an 800 square foot house. It's a 1,700 square foot house. Well, And by volume, it's it's 18,000 cubic feet. It's an 800 square foot house to the assessor and everybody beyond the person doing the calculation for heating and cooling. Well, but according to the code, if it's a conditioned space, you'd have to count that. Um, well, you're in your four thousand square foot and twelve or thousand square foot. You probably didn't. We did. The we did. Oh yeah, has there, to. That square footage is included in the basement. So a thousand square right. foot two bedroom home includes the basement. No, that's a slab on grade. It doesn't have a basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We counted all the conditioned space. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of made up houses that we're running, running before you guys on. start fisticuff, I'm going to put <laughs> Pete's resource up there. Okay. Okay. So. Um, for indoor air quality, I, once again, Building Science Corporation, buildingscience.com has great resources looking at all aspects of mechanical ventilation. But Green Building Advisor, the Building Science blogs, um, there's a number written by Martin Holiday. There's a number written by Allison Bales that are really good contemporaneous, so up to speed with the latest changes in ASHRAE 62.2. Those are great auxiliary resources in addition to what we covered in this. And Allison uh, publishes all kinds of stuff everywhere. He's energy just, Energy Vanguard is his blog. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's good he's at a, explaining. A great well, he's, a great he's got a book out. So too. He, Allison, you know, he's a PhD in building science and an uh, acting practitioner that does mechanical design for buildings. I, 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 we are so lucky to have a guy like him. And many of his blogs are in front of the paywall in GBA or for free on his website. So oh, he's really good. Out. What's the guy's in Texas? Oh shoot, Christoph, Christoph Irwin. Uh, oh, they're in Austin. 
Dang it, I feel so bad that I can't. It's not building science Texas, but no. it's uh, something else. Man. We'll put it. We'll put it on the website. Yeah, we'll put a link episode. below the YouTube video, uh, and and put it in the show show notes. I apologize, Christoph. Uh, yeah, they they are. Yeah, phone. They're doing incredible. I don't because we're recording and I didn't want it to ring and yeah, it'd yeah, be yeah, a distraction. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, you know what that's ooh, like. A little bit of a sore point at the end of the <laughs> podcast. And on that note, we want to thank you very much for tuning in. And Jake's going to tell you all about how to do the proper social media etiquette related to, to, to unbuilt podcast stuff with the with the thing. <laughs> like and subscribe. Hit the little bell so that you get a notification every time we publish a YouTube video. Steve brings up a valid point now at the end of the episodes. We're publishing two videos a week, one on Tuesdays, one on Thursdays. Right now, when this one publishes, you're still working through your uh, Before the Build series on our Hilltop Arrow House. With Big Red. They're really good. They're and really he's good. literally just going through the plans and talking about every decision that was made in the design process and the pre-planning aspect of the, the construction process. There is, a, You're right. They are good. Yeah. I didn't want to give him credit for it, but they're pretty good. Uh, so every Tuesday, every Thursday, there's new content from us on YouTube. And then uh, first and third Thursday of the month, this thing publishes. Uh, both on YouTube and your favorite uh, audio platform for podcasts. Go to iTunes, leave a five-star review. That helps other people find us, and that's why we're doing this, is to share this information. We know this. We talk about this. We want to share it with other people now. So help us do that. Thanks for watching. See you later.